Hi everybody, just before we start this week's show, we have an exciting announcement to make. And that is that the National Comedy Awards are coming up very soon, and the great mothership that is QI, and the mother herself that is Sandy Toxvig. <laughs> how creepy, I don't know how she'd feel about me calling her my mother, uh, but that is Sandy Toxvig, are both up for awards. That's absolutely right. QI is nominated for Best Comedy Panel Show and Sandy, or Mummy as I call her, has been (laughs) shortlisted for Outstanding Female Comedy Entertainment Performance. We think that both are deserving winners, so if you would like to go and vote for QI or for Sandy in those awards, go to qi.com slash vote. So easy to do and so important that you get your vote in and help us destroy all comedy competition, which as we all know, is the point of comedy. Yes, exactly. Flatten all that comedy and if you do want to remind yourself why they're the best, all of QI is now available on BBC iPlayer. Go and watch a few episodes and convince yourself that they both deserve to win. That's qi.com slash vote. Do it now. On with the show. On with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I'm sitting here with Andrew Hunter-Murray, Anna Tashinsky, and James Harkin. And once again, we have gathered round the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, and that is Anna. My fact this week is that the first female composer to become a dame used to tie herself to trees to improve her posture. (laughs) (laughs) I have a question. Mm -hmm. Was her posture originally too bent so she stood next to a tall tree or was it originally too straight so she stood next to like a weeping willow or something mm. to bend herself over <laughs> she tied herself to one of those really droopy branches yeah. Yeah. Um, I believe it was to the trunk oh, Okay. Um, she didn't specify I think she left it for us to assume this was an amazing woman called Ethel Smythe she was writing music and conducting and creating you know operas and all sorts of classical music at the turn of the 20th century and there's a new book coming out which covers her life it's going to be called quartet sounds great coming out in spring by someone called dr leah broad and she read an account of an interviewer who went to meet ethel Smythe at one point to interview her about her music making and she found that she was tied to a tree (laughs) and specifically to improve her posture as a conductor Oh, come on. No, something went wrong. Some sort of weird sex game went oh, yeah, wrong. Yeah. The interviewer like, what are you doing? Oh, no, it's for the old the old conducting. You're so right. Come on. She was actually a bit of a sex minx, so I reckon it was that. Mm. I, yeah, yeah, but you can't admit that to the interviewer first thing, can you? And then you have to just carry that on for the rest of your career. You just got to, people are sort of recommending trees. <laughs> yeah. You know, you've got a big pot plant with a thick trunk there in the in the orchestra pit tied to it mid-show <laughs> which is what you should do she's amazing yeah she yeah. is incredible so uh, she was very successful in her time given how unlikely it was for a woman to be successful in composing writing music what was her time specifically she was born in 1858 she died in 1944 yeah and a lot yeah. of her most famous works will have been around the 1880s 1890s and the early 1900s mm. yeah and she was prolific she wrote so much she wrote six operas which operas are a big feat and plus loads of chamber music and orchestral and stuff she played for queen victoria and for edward the seventh 
And she was so ambitious that we know that she kept a diary throughout her childhood and she wrote in her diary at age eight that she intended to be made a peer because of her musical prowess. Mm, and lo and behold. And she was. And she was. That's yeah. amazing. It's good to have something to aim for, isn't it? Yeah. Because yeah. actually when she was a child, I read um, that she was quite good at sports. Um, this was on the Surrey government website and it said from the beginning when she was a child she won a bet for riding a pig and to the end of her long life she was a keen sportswoman really wow. so yeah that shows how keen you are at sports <laughs> yeah. she was she definitely won lots of contests and in lots of different sports I think she was very vigorous picture like a good Miss Trunchbull maybe mm. um, so she did like mountaineering tennis hunting cycling golf golf, golf. Yes. very keen on golf James she did yeah. do golf I she must admit most of my facts are about Woking Golf Club oh <laughs> the, the thing is the thing what James actually might theoretically have a point dragging us into the golfing world <laughs> is that I was looking up her damehood which was 1923 uh, the honours list then and she was convinced it was because she was a member of the Woking Golf Club Oh, yeah. really? Okay. Well, and so she was. She had friends in high places, kissing some ass well, where it matters. Oh, but, wow. Well, it was owned by a guy called Lord Riddell, uh, who yeah. was a, a bigwig, senior lawyer, and a newspaper proprietor, and all that sort of stuff. And he was a he was a member of the club, and so was she. Um, and there was a big dispute about the changing rooms. Oh yeah, where the women members wanted to walk across a shortcut a short route what mm-hmm. I know and it took them past the men's changing rooms oh, yeah. to get oh, to yeah. the women's rooms nightmare and the men were very uncomfortable about this the women walking past their changing rooms oh, yeah. I'm not sure if the men's changing rooms were just sheet glass in the windows or something like that. I mean it doesn't, it doesn't I don't think they would have seen anything if it's men- also it's not like a swimming pool it's not like you have to <laughs> exactly. take your kit off yeah. completely to You're put your golf right. shoes on <laughs> What, what are they such doing a good there? Well, anyway. What do men do in changing rooms, actually? Suddenly, it's way more suspicious for them to kick mm, up this big fuss. You're right. Uh, Robert James, you presumably spend a lot of time in those... You might have a shower. Oh, there we go. So basically, the men were uncomfortable about the, this situation with the, with the women walking near their changing rooms, and they demanded that the women be banned from playing golf at weekends as a sort of proportional response. And Smythe actually told the ladies' committee, "Look, let's let's give the men a slightly easier ride on this one. Maybe they're just incredibly modest, and um, <laughs> they're, they're they're worried about it. And they the, the sort of militant women, almost all of them, abandoned this this shortcut route. Uh, so she basically sold out the sisterhood, and um, you know gave the men at the golf club a slightly easier time. And she thinks that because Lord Riddell was maybe had friends with the PM, wow. he might have uh, <laughs> said, "Look, we should make this woman a day." Um, Lord Riddell had a particularly tiny penis. <laughs> <laughs> So relieved. It's, it's a particularly dangerous place to tie yourself to trees as well, a golf course. Certainly yeah, if I'm yes. playing golf, you do not want to be tied to any trees near me. She, I, when I read her story, I've never heard of her before, but she just is, it's begging for a movie to be made about her life. She was a suffragette. She played a big role in composing songs for the suffragettes, but she also had rumours of affairs going on with people like Emmeline Pankhurst and, um, and everybody and Virginia Woolf. Although these are all yeah. kind of rumours. And I think Virginia Woolf was the one who started the Pankhurst rumour, suggesting that they were lovers, but she spent time in jail for throwing stones. She was just, she was a badass, basically. Yeah. I think she was in love with both of those two people. I think she was a woman who fell in love quite a lot. You get the impression. And it was sometimes reciprocated and sometimes not. I mean, Virginia Woolf wrote when Ethel fell in love with her. She wrote in her diary, I think, 
An old woman has fallen in love with me. It's like being caught by a giant crab. <laughs> oh, which isn't, it's not what you want, is it? No, you not don't really. say yes no. to that. No. Um, it just comes at you sideways. Pounces. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, we should talk about the thing which landed her in prison. Yeah. Because mm. this was a brilliant incident. It was in 1912. And um, this, the really cool thing is you could hear her talking about it. There was a recording made before she died. But she was saying at 5.30 p.m. one evening in 1912, uh, relays of women produced from their muffs and handbags uh, hammers and things like that and proceeded to methodically smash up windows in all the big London thoroughfares and Mrs Pankhurst was the one who kind of opened the bowling on that occasion so she threw a stone at 10 Downing Street yeah. and then simultaneously nice. all over London uh, suffragettes and suffragettes were, were throwing stones at, at various buildings and she was one of them so she went to the house of someone called Lord Harcourt uh, who had annoyed her and um, she got to the target square there was a policeman standing around and she said you know whose house is that uh, and what about that one and then she threw a stone through the window of Lord Harcourt and he says will you come quietly and she said yes and then he arrested her and she went off to prison that was it, it was, that was the protest that's cool um, Virginia Woolf said that she was the first ever woman to write an opera uh, and she was wrong about that because the first woman to write an opera was someone called Francesca Caccini and it was about 250 years before um, Ethel Smythe um, came along uh, and Caccini she was amazing um, she sang at the wedding of Henry IV of France and he was so impressed by her singing that he asked her to stay in his court uh, and by the time of the 1620s so the top of her career she was the highest paid musician in the court really uh, this woman and her opera which was the first w- written by a woman this is called La Liberazione di Ruggiero uh, and it was so good that the king of Poland heard it and he rushed all the way back to Poland and created his own opera house just so that he could get someone to play this opera in it. Wow. God, it was such a hassle before gramophones or CD players. Wasn't it? Spotify, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 to build a bloody opera house. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair to Virginia Woolf, no internet for her. No, so she couldn't Google it, could she? You had to make a guess. <laughs> Do you know we have mentioned Ethel Smythe on this podcast before? But without knowing it. Ooh. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Um, so, do you remember, listeners at home, and you guys, you know the, the Bishop of Truro, um, Edward White Benson, who invented the carol concert, right. the Christmas carol concert. Okay. We've okay. talked about him because he had this amazing family. His wife was gay and kept a diary of her 39 lesbian lovers oh, and yeah. had lots of affairs. And we mentioned that his wife was going out with this particular woman who was then stolen by his daughter and it was this raunchy love triangle okay. where mother and daughter were fighting and that was Ethel. Whoa. Oh, that's it. Yeah. Um, it's obviously a different world now for, for composers, female um, composers. But a survey was done in 2020 to see on an average year how many orchestral concerts worldwide were playing music that was composed by women. So in percentage terms, what do you reckon it would be? Oh, still, still Miniscule, really low. I should think. Yeah, yeah. yeah so they five. They surveyed one. fifteen orchestras worldwide um, who did more than a thousand five hundred concerts and did four thousand pieces. And what it comes out is eight point two percent. So only one hundred and forty-two of the pieces were composed by women, which is not much more than it was in her day, according yeah. to this um, stat from Don D O N N E, which is women. <laughs> Don, Don. <laughs> your mate Don down the Don. pub. I've met him. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if he's reliable. Done my research for me this week. Um, <laughs> it's a it's a women in music charity foundation, and they did this as a big global survey to find Ooh. out. And There's yeah. that song about him, isn't there? Don 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 Don. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, the problem is, I suppose, is that um, orchestras tend to play classical music and it is all from the past and almost all past composers were men. So it's so hard to sort of create a female composer from the 1800s. But certainly there should be more contemporary ones, which mm. still aren't. Mm. Um, just one more thing about Smythe. Oh, yeah. She once kidnapped her own opera. Oh, yes. Mid-show. This is so cool. Uh, it was in Leipzig in 1906, her, her opera The Wreckers had its debut, which is about a load of people who uh, wreck ships. She found out there had been edits made. Uh She was absolutely furious. She found some cuts had been made to the third act. She walked into the orchestra pit. She took the parts off the musicians and she took the score with her and she went to Prague, (laughs) um, (laughs) where she thought she'd get a fairer hearing and uh, get it played in full. A nuts move. For someone who's achieved what no one could have really dreamed a woman would achieve at that time. God, they're putting it on in Leipzig. They've got standing ovation huge deal she storms off in a strop with all the stuff they need to play it I just find it so funny though that how vulnerable are classical musicians that when the paper is taken away well that's it <laughs> we can't do anything we can't remember the chords like well, any other song it's not it's not Westlife song operas are long operas are long oh if you're playing a violin you can memorise you can memorise a piece Dude, no they've think? just seen this piece I think that you know bands play for three hours it's the same for- chords guys it's the same instruments <laughs> there's everyone, no extra everyone, chords LA. everyone play an A yeah. right now everyone an E there's no extra notes that classical people have that Coldplay don't have and if you're a classical musician if you're a classical bassoonist and you think that uh, what you do is no more difficult than uh, a rudimentary Coldplay song then please write to dan podcast at qi.com yeah yeah we, yeah. we crave to hear let from me you. hear yeah okay and let you're the telling bassoon me... meet the buffoon <laughs> Bruce Springsteen does five hour gigs you're telling me you're better than him bassoon he's boy play- he's been playing <laughs> Oh God. And also, yeah, he's been playing the same tune for 50, 50 years. years. He hasn't seen, I've got a three hour opera put in front of him two days ago. Like, bloody hell, rehearse this. And then you're going to play it in two nights. It's, it's a, like a panic dream for any normal human being. <laughs> Dan, he would have caught it first time. A quick glance, nailed it. Got it. Tears up the paper. Da, 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 da. Forget that. How do you forget that? Da, 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 da. Thank you and good night. Good night, Vienna. Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is Andy. My fact is that TV screens are cut from a massive TV screen called the Mother Glass. The Mother Glass. (laughs) The Mother Glass. The Mother Glass itself, does it work as an enormous TV screen? I imagine it would do. Oh, cool. But uh, it's so big that uh, I don't think they've made the TV big enough. You wouldn't be able to get out of the factory, would you? I should say where this comes from. This comes from a brilliant Atlantic piece about TV tech. And um, the main focus of it was that actually that TVs are so cheap. TVs are way cheaper than they used to be. And there are various reasons for that. One is the LED panels, which are now the main ingredient in TV. They're much cheaper. And another reason is the mother glass. Uh, because manufacturers are way better these days at cutting screens out of the mother glass. So there's much less wastage. And so that's part of the reason why TVs are so much cheaper. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, how do you make mother glass? It's basically the glass. So this is we're talking about LCD screens, aren't we? Which are basically what your TV screen probably is today. Um, and you've got your two thin sheets of glass sandwiched together. I think in between the two thin sheets of glass, there's like a liquid crystal thing which acts as the conductor. And so you just have this huge sheet of that glass. And I think each sheet can be dozens of feet. The mother glass. Yeah. Um, 
and so you can cut you know 10 10 15 tvs out of that and how they make glass yeah i don't know if they still do it this way but i think they do it's basically float glass so float glass was invented in the 50s in st helens uh, near where i'm from and the idea is it was really hard to make flat glass in those days but what they've worked out is you could put a load of glass on a load of molten tin. So you melt a load of tin to a really high temperature and then you put the glass on it and it sits perfectly on top of it. Like if you pour oil on water, okay, it'll yeah. just be a sh- small film of it. And then when the tin and the glass cools down, you can just sort of peel it off and it'll be a really flat piece of glass. That and I so think that's cool. still how they so make flat glass. So yeah. it certainly was 10 years ago. That's amazing. You know, researching this fact, I just came across so much new vocab. It was great. It was oh, like cool. researching a foreign language. Um, well, you so, don't watch much TV, do you, Hannah? <laughs> that's true. So, um, so there's a fab. Fabs are constantly referred to when you're talking about um, like high-end technological production. And these are factories in China. It's short for fabrication plants. And no one ever explains what they are because they assume if you're reading these articles, you definitely know what a fab is. Mm. So all, all of these screens are made in fabs. Apparently, mm. you can spot an LCD screen-making fab because they'll be very tall. They'll go up many, many stories. And they will hoist the equipment up the outside. <laughs> so they have big windows on the outside where they hoist the equipment up and then they just hoist it in right. to where oh. they need it cool everyone in there looks like they're in hazmat suits or ebola fighters because they have to have what you call clean rooms because mm. it's so fine you know you're working with like atomic level stuff mm. and when you're making these very specialized screens you can't get a single speck of dust so the the rooms have to be what you call a class 10 clean room or even a class one clean room and what that means is that you have to have Fewer than one particle, smaller than 0.3 microns in diameter per cubic meter of air. So for comparison, okay. So that's that's class one. So so that's who is has that to the go best. With... That's the best. That's... <laughs> are you, are you about to ask who cleans? <laughs> who well, counts like, them? The cl- who counts who goes in and counts them? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's an eight. That's <laughs> found eight of those. Some yeah technician with a magnifying glass. Yeah. Um, wow. So for comparison, the article I was reading, which I guess was written by someone in Harvard, so they compared it to Harvard Square. They said Harvard Square would in Boston would be class 8 million. <laughs> oh, right. in wow. 8 just in, million just in the particles. air, not even on the ground. It's in just... the air, yeah, in the air. 8 million <laughs> oh, particles grubby. per cubic metre. This has to have one. If there's more than one, <laughs> you shut down the factory. Wow. That's awesome. My TV's got one of these. It's so annoying. What? Well, what? I think it's actually more of a dead pixel, but it's just this tiny spot, and it's, it's absolute <laughs> dead centre. Everything I watch, whatever's in the middle, has like a small fly on it. Really? So but you're always watching the darts, aren't you? Are you sure? It's yeah, yeah. The... <laughs> I, I've got to stop joining in when I when I watch it. <laughs> That's yeah. so funny. Mm. Um, these, um, you were saying that they need to be really thin, and like um, part of the reason for that is because to make your glass non-reflective you need to put a kind of film on it mm-hmm. so if you just have normal glass like all the lights going to reflect off it you're not going to be able to watch tv properly and so they have something called non-reflective glass and that was invented by someone called Catherine burr blodgett uh, and what she did was she basically would build up these one molecule films of atoms and then she put another layer on and another layer on and another layer on and so she could control exactly how thick it was going to be and she worked out the exact thickness that it would have to be to make this glass non-reflective 
It's absolutely incredible. Wow. The first movie that used her invisible glass was Gone with the Wind. And people said when they watched it how clear the cinematography was because the cameras had been using this amazing glass. When was this? This, well, Gone with the Wind was 39. Oh, so it, it was when it was released? God, yeah. I didn't realise they could do that kind of thing. Well, in- exactly. Amazing, <laughs> right? Funny. But it was also her um, her glass or her non-reflective glass was used in World War II to make periscopes as well. Oh, oh cool. Yeah. And I was looking into new TV innovations and just trying to see if there's a TV that I haven't seen. Because all of, all, most of it is kind of just permutations, isn't it, at this point? It's just, you know, like higher, higher, you know, Blu-ray, screen, you know, blah, 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 mm. kind of stuff. Um, Why sure. were you fired from Curry's then? <laughs> <laughs> I got, you know, if you're a TV... TV maker at the moment and Dan's just saying how piss easy it is to make a new TV if I just add a permutation right into Dan Schreiner God so check this out Samsung and this is clever Samsung have released a vertical TV they've turned a TV on its side yeah Now it's very clever because why do you think they've done this? Oh, because people film vertically on their phones. Exactly. So the new generation of kids that are sending their videos to the TV are not getting the proper. Well, wait view. a minute. So if I buy that TV, great, my daughter will be able to watch her TikTok videos yeah. whenever she's and old Instagram. enough to. Yeah. And you'll have to watch the Sopranos. Countdown sideways. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, so Samsung very cleverly have made it so that you can flip it back the right oh, way around, and you yeah. still have. I, know. I feel that's a gimmick. Uh, I'm going to say major. Major advance in the innovation right. of TV. <laughs> okay, here's well, all right. Here's another one. Um, in fact, this sort of links back to why TVs are cheap these days. Is the TVs that watch you? Mm. Oh, oh, not so such it's... a good show as The Sopranos. Poor things. <laughs> no, yeah. no, no. It's true. The Sopranos are bored out of their fucking minds <laughs> yeah. watching this guy <laughs> trying to rub off a little spot <laughs> on his TV. <laughs> um, so this is this is a really interesting thing. TVs, TVs are smart. They're internet connected. All, all TVs all these days pretty much are that. And one thing that loads of TVs do, they collect your data and they will sell it to advertisers, right? And what that means is that TVs can be sold more cheaply because they know that for the next several years they're going to be getting your data and that will be worth some money to them. Mm-hmm. So TVs are now being sold effectively for exactly what it costs to make them. Mm. And then they will sell you viewing data and they can make the money back on the long run. And sometimes the data will be sold to places like Netflix, even if you don't have a Netflix account, which I find so bizarre. Mm. Yeah. And I think I think that might... Makes th- sense. I wonder if that theoretically means that when you turn on Netflix for the first time, if you do later get Netflix, they're like, ah, Mr. Murray, <laughs> we've been expecting you. But joke's on them, because I always make sure to only watch stuff I hate on my smart TV. <laughs> That's really interesting because I do the same on Amazon. I only buy things I hate yeah. just to get those things. Just to screw with those yeah. algorithms. They don't know what data they're getting. It's mm. not the truth. <laughs> um, I read about so a very old bit of TV um, technology that I just had never heard of before. And it seems an extraordinary thing. But have you guys heard of phone vision for TVs? No, don't okay, think so, so. So this was back in um, the 50s. And what it was is that this was pay for tv this was like pay-per-view tv so if a movie had been out in the cinema for two years they managed to get the rights to it and they would put it on tv and it would be the first time anyone would be seeing it on tv in their house so how do you do pay-per-view for tv back then when you don't have the kind of payment systems and stuff that we do now coin meter on the side of the tv there was one that had a coin meter (laughs) but that's this is more interesting in a weird kind of technological way what they did was you would go to the channel and you would see the movie playing 
but it would be completely blurry and all just didn't make you know the sound wasn't there and didn't make sense so you could see like oh my god gone with the wind is on right. i need to get to it and what you did was you then called up an operator and you told them that you would like to now watch this movie it would cost a dollar and they would add that to your phone bill and what they would then do is send a frequency through the phone that would somehow play with the tv and unblur it and give you all the sound so is your phone and TV working together cool. to get the frequency Incredible. right? Yeah, I mean, it's mad. And they did many tests on it. It never, never kicked off, obviously, because various reasons. Okay. Like, If you were quite stingy, because this is definitely what I would do, especially if I was a teenager or something, do you know if you could watch the whole thing, but like the blurry crap version that didn't really make sense? Mm. Like that would keep playing? I think so. I would totally do yeah. that and yeah. just sort of try to work out. You know when you used to get like bootleg um, DVDs, DVDs from foreign countries? Filmed in a cinema. Yeah, yeah and you'd watch finger. the bottom quarter of the screen and you'd only see half of their bodies. Yeah, exactly. I, I was reading about the what claimed to be the first remote control, the Lazy Bones, and oh, yeah. it was it was a remote control, and it was connected by a cable to the television, so it's, yeah. it's not completely remote. Um, and the operation is mechanical; it's not electronic. So you know, when you press it now, it's a little infrared beam or whatever. These days, if you press the button, it activated a motor that was used to physically turn the dial Brilliant. on the television. <laughs> so good. I know. Feels like there should be a little hand-like thing from yeah. the Adams family turning <laughs> yeah. it yeah. On remote controls, yeah. is that what your family calls those yeah. Those items? Everyone else, what do you call it? Uh, I'd say the buttons. The buttons. Mm. That's, you say channel changer. Channel changer, that's an unusual one. Mm. We used to call them the magic buttons. Uh, <laughs> and there was a list online of, um, someone did a survey of what people in the UK call them. And magic buttons wasn't in the top 100. I should say uh, but the number one was remote can you guess any of the others in the top five we haven't said them yet uh, the doofer doofer number two yes really? oh. um, the word doofer originally meant half a cigarette oh, wow. uh, in the 1920s and it came from this will do for now this will do for me that's brilliant yeah. ah, nice okay so that's remote doofer we've got was three wand, to get was wonder thing like, a, uh, like a that's magic... not one that I saw uh, I'd say the thing uh, no um, zapper Clicker, uh, clicker, okay, and okay. flicker. Jobby? Jobby? Jobby, you guys are so bad. Someone's left a jobby on the arm of the sofa. <laughs> no, yeah, Anna. Put the jobby on the table where it belongs. You haven't seen much Billy Connolly, have you? <laughs> jobby, I believe, is only a euphemism for poo, yeah. to my knowledge. <laughs> okay, I can't think. You use the word jobby when you can't think of the right word for something, right? You're like, oh, what's, pass that jobby over God, there. Your poor housemates <laughs> come home with remote controls in the toilet again. <laughs> doesn't make any sense plunging away at it (laughs) they were leaving poos on our tables I never understood why okay it is time for fact number three and that is my fact my fact this week is that Queen Charlotte once got seasickness while visiting an art exhibition on land Amazing. I can't believe we got a fact about sickness. <laughs> Literally recovering from food poisoning. Yeah, Jane's feeling terrible, mm. listener, just so you know. Um, I got this fact from a brilliant book by a buddy of ours, Edward Brooke Hitching, and it's called The Madman's Gallery, which is an incredible book, by the way. I love his books, and this is a beautifully illustrated book all about the weirdest and most quirky and curious bits of art that have been made over the course of history all over the world. It's like he's curated this really stunning book, and one of the chapters talks about this incredible thing that happened just Five minutes walk from where we are, Leicester Square, down the road, in 1790s, um, in 1794 particularly, when Queen Charlotte went to see what was a giant panoramic piece of art, huge, 
in a purpose-built building so that you could go out inside and be immersed by this extraordinary scene and one that he did was a sea battle and Queen Charlotte went to see it and she was so immersed and felt so overcome by all the movement of the ships that she got seasick and there's a few stories that said she vomited into her handkerchief there's others that just say she was very <laughs> nauseous yeah but yeah which handkerchief uh, was that a blower it, or a shower? It was a, uh, yeah, it must have been the blower. It was a vomer. It was a special. Yeah, special, fetch the third handkerchief. Yeah, it's interesting. She, um, I think, the main part of the story comes from the uh, memoirs of the man who created this panorama, uh, whose name was Barker. Yeah, Robert Barker, uh, and he wrote that Charlotte had told him that she had felt seasick. Yeah. Um, at the time mm. there is a suggestion that he was quite a salesman and yes. used to make stuff up absolutely so there's a there's a chance it might not be true totally there's a few accounts though of just like how people who went in that's for sure it did happen the people got seasick yeah people they? got seasick but also the thing was that the paintings themselves were they were beautiful paintings but they were sort of presented in this way that they kind of were a bit of an illusion that you got a bit confused that maybe something was going on and your eyes were playing tricks with you so in the sea battle one there was a capsized ship boat and there were sailors that were struggling in the waves and according to one story there was a guy who was visiting and he had his dog with him a Newfoundland dog and this dog saw the drowning man in the painting and leapt what? over the no. leapt over on. to rescue the drowning Come man. On. That is one of the stories. Again, I think that was used in the advertising for the panorama. I yeah. think that was whether it happened or it so might have funny. happened, but yeah, they said this is so realistic that this happened. Yeah, exactly. Keep, keep your dogs at home. Yeah. <laughs> Do not rescue your dogs. That's so funny. There I'm imagining dog. like the end you know the end of the Truman show where the dog mm. bites through <laughs> the screen and he's suddenly on the on in the real world. Is that oh. a spoiler? He's been trapped. It is, yeah. yeah. And if you haven't Mega. seen the end of the Truman Show yet, James. It's almost as old as Anna Karenina. <laughs> <laughs> um, this building is so cool. And mm. like Dan says, uh, the building where he hosted lots of his panoramas. Um, I went to it today. Oh, before did the you? Show. Yeah. It's, it's right next to the Prince Charles Cinema oh, and the yeah. Leicester Square Theatre. You know, that yes. street just yeah. off Leicester Square. And it's now a French uh, Catholic church. It's the Church of Notre Dame de France. And, and you're a French Catholic, aren't you? So you just, <laughs> just have to be taking mass. That's how I got in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, it's a, you go into the church and it's a completely round church. And you think, oh, that's interesting. It's not a classic, your classic church, mm-hmm. cross-shaped. Yeah, no. And uh, it's beautiful in there. And you can, you can really know. imagine. You could still go in. That's yeah. really interesting. It's completely open every day of the week. He actually invented the word panorama, he said. And he, it is worth thinking about how amazing it would have been to go into this place. It yeah. was two mm. levels. Yeah. And so I think he had two panoramas exhibiting in there at the same time. Yes, yeah. And it was kind of like when you go to a fairground like one of the bit more crap rides where you just walk around it but still you look at the big painting on the ground floor and then you went through a series of palette cleanser dark corridors and mm. staircases so that you could erase that from your mind mm. so that you could get up to the next floor and enjoy even that to one. get to the first one you had to go through some weird dark corridors yeah. didn't you and the way that it was lit was really impressive like it was lit from above using natural light but it meant that it was really realistic and so you would kind of go through all these dark corridors dark 
corridors and then you'd be hit by this incredible scene. Yeah. Yeah. But what that did mean was that at certain times of the year, it was better than others. So for instance, if the weather wasn't good, it wasn't that good to see. If it was foggy, you probably wouldn't go. If it was raining, you probably wouldn't go. In winter, you'd probably only go at midday. The rest of the day, it was not quite so good. And it was like a shilling to go, which is not that much, but to some Londoners it was. So if you're going to spend your money, you'd go on a really good day. But they kept putting them on. So he started in 1787, painting his first ever one, and it opened up in London in the 1780s or 90s. At the Leicester Square one, they had a new show every couple of years until 1861. Mm. So they had 126 different panoramas there. It's a huge industry. And it meant you could travel the world uh, from London. You know, you could see all sorts of different cities and places and historical things. You could see battles and you could see revolutions. And it just sounds unbelievably good. And what's particularly beautiful about it is, so you do have the, the ones where it's old battle scenes and the painters used to go and interview people of the of the area and they would try and get the landscape but for me the most beautiful ones are there was a panorama of Edinburgh and what it was is he stood up I think with his son on Carlton Hill in Edinburgh and so when you stand in the center of this panorama what you're seeing is literally the view absolutely perfectly matched for what you would see if you were standing in his shoes when he was painting it. Yeah. I just find that absolutely stunning that as was a his first concept. One. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean that is the that is the premise of all paintings really. Yes, is that you're really seeing is. what the painter was seeing when they yeah, but, apart from abstract ones. <laughs> oh god, I mean yeah, but, who but the really sea battle the ones, ones that we're showing, you know, that wasn't someone while everyone was falling out of their boats and everything was on fire <laughs> going, "Sorry, can <laughs> you just hold it? Hold <laughs> it for one <laughs> minute." Just stop. Yeah. Moving. <laughs> um, the panoramas in general, they became huge. So Barker started this trade. He really quickly had imitators. Um, he, he trademarked it, didn't he? Like that was he tried to make sure that that did. was his invention. But then it ran out after yeah. about a decade, and so then it was a complete free for all the panoramas everywhere. There was one in 1831 in Paris, which was about the Battle of Navarino, the naval battle. And the producer, this is so cool, he was called Charles Longlois, and he replaced the normal viewing platform that everyone would stand on in the middle and look around at the picture with the poop deck of a ship which had taken part in the Battle of Navarino. Nice. Ultra-realistic. He, he added ventilation for, to give a sea breeze, and oh. he, did, he did all of this clever stuff to make it feel incredibly accurate. Poop deck, of course, covered in channel changes, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We covered very slightly ages ago about Banvard and that, that brilliant book, oh, yeah. Banvard's Folly, which we always get asked about from listeners. Um, but what that was was those turnstile panoramas where it was basically a movie wrapped up and you would you would turn it and it would be a moving mm. as if you were on a train and the view was passing you yeah. by the painting would pass you by and they would have sound and they would have um they would have smells kind yeah. of like what you're saying with the other immersive thing and you would watch that like a movie which is amazing and banvard had one which was the mississippi valley and it was a, it was a three mile canvas three mile long <laughs> canvas he called it it was actually half a mile uh, when people probably looked into it but all of this, which feels like it's such a shame that we don't have this anymore, this, yeah. these panoramic you know, rotundas, I think they'd be beautiful to go into. It was cinema that killed it. When when cinema yeah. arrived, that just, no one was interested anymore in seeing were they, these were things. Were the panoramas still, I didn't know they were still going they at were. the turn of the 20th century, yeah. they were still they really was, popular. They were still wow. going, and um, basically the 1900 Grand Exhibition, which I think was in Paris, uh, mm. was the last, it was sort of the absolute apogee and the final grand hurrah of the panoramas. Um, mm. I was reading a, a really great book called Panorama, and it, it said that between 1870 and 1900, 100 million people around the world went to see panoramas. No Although 100 million way. tickets were sold, maybe a lot of that was the same people, but mm. a huge claim. 
just on the uh, the kind of last hurrah of the panorama. Oh yeah, uh, the uh, nineteen hundred grand exhibition. Uh, so they, they got they got really really fancy. Basically, they built and built and built, and there were all these that were called Rama shows. So there was the Diorama, there was the Alparama, the Cosmorama, Europarama, Neorama, it, 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 Futurama. Yeah, it developed. <laughs> Bananarama. <in> <laughs> <laughs> um, in nineteen hundred, in the grand exhibition, this oh, this sounds so good. The Mariorama. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a me. Yeah, to find the princess. Uh, it's amazing. Um, no, there were the, so seven hundred people got on the platform. Yeah, uh, and then you would sail from Marseille to Yokohama. Okay, a huge long voyage, yeah. and it, I don't know how it revolved or, or moved around you, but that's that, mostly sea, I would think. It's all sea. Oh yeah, sorry. It's a complete right. sea voyage, but it was it was it, the it's quite an easy thing to paint, is what I'm saying. Whoa. You're absolutely right. You're saying a bunch of sea is an easy thing to paint. Are you joining Dan? <laughs> in the, please if, write in. And if you're an ocean <laughs> painter, yeah. uh, turn up. Please get in touch. <laughs> No, you're right. Sorry. There were big sites along the way of, right. of, of Naples and the Suez Canal and Sri Lanka and things like that. And it sort oh, of moved yeah, around way. you. Um, and the uh, this is so cool. The air was blown through a layer of kelp to make it seem like the sea breeze That's was blowing so around you. Um, just on vomiting and art, okay. and sickness and art, do you guys know Millie Brown? Doesn't sound familiar. So she's friends with Lady Gaga. Mm-hmm. And oh. so when she was 17 in the early 2000s, she was a young artist. She went on stage in Berlin uh, doing some performance art and she decided, hadn't tried it before, to try and vomit art onto a canvas. <laughs> oh and she lined God. up seven bottles of different <laughs> coloured milk dyed differently. And then the whole show is two hours of watching her throw it up. I could have done that yesterday. <laughs> but I, no one would have paid to watch you. And well, yet, that's, that's, with Millie... that's the artificial barriers of the art world, frankly. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, so right. You know, exactly. my... I often go to the um, to the Tate Modern Girl. I could have done that. <laughs> my, my five-year-old could have done that. I mean, literally could. <laughs> Just go to Leicester Square on a Saturday night and get the free Millie Brown oh, show. Gosh. All sorts of colours. Wow. So what did she manage to do? Did she manage to do a nice picture of some flowers or, or perhaps <laughs> yeah. a portrait? It was a beautiful sort of impressionist-y water lilies, Monet. Yeah, it was a vomity mess, I suppose, but I'm sure it was very good. Um, she said there was an old lady who was so moved that she left in tears. <laughs> <laughs> um, optical illusions? Sure. sure. Just I was think things that look different or make you feel uh, feel weird. Um, so if if you're a footballer, yeah, and you score a goal, yeah, oh yeah, what, the next time you approach the goal, you perceive it as bigger than it is, right. and if you take a shot on goal and you miss, the next time you perceive it as smaller. Yeah, yeah. I watch a lot of basketball, and you read about that a lot yeah. of players saying that when they get on a run of three pointers. The, right. the basket, the rim, just feels Absolutely. like it's a bucket size, like it, you just can't miss. Yeah. It just, bucket yeah. size is actually smaller than a basketball <laughs> ring. Uh, yeah, I think sorry, the, the average it? bucket. Yeah, no, good point. Yeah, you little garden bucket. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Anna. I think you're really knowledgeable about loads of stuff. I don't think you know the size of the average bucket on Earth. <laughs> Like a metal bucket you right. regarding. I think she's right. I think I think it's a rim is right. No, I'm thinking of a paint bucket or a KFC bucket. Also, <laughs> definitely, smaller. yeah. That's small. That's small. What's a bigger bucket? Well, an ice bucket for the ice bucket challenge. Absolutely huge. Can be. Okay, but that tended to just be a big, in. like, plastic box full yeah. of water. Usually. Yeah, that's a laundry basket. What, that's a look, basket. You're thinking I, of a I, barrel. I, I think, think we're all making my case for me, which is that a bucket is not a size. When you take your kid to the beach, do you, you just take a giant, <laughs> just dump them with this giant barrel-sized bucket? Make a sandcastle, bitch. <laughs> um, 
I read one last thing. This is quite rude. It's quite mm-hmm. recent as well. It's a news story. It's a guy who was... Um, uh, he was at an optical illusion uh, show with his girlfriend, and there was one room in it where you could do an illusion which made things look bigger, right? <laughs> yeah. Now, he did what any funny young man I've been in do. one of those rooms. I know right. the ones you mean. One, the person goes in one corner, and another person stands in the other corner, and one of them looks like a giant, and the other one looks tiny, right? Right. And he obviously, obviously... <laughs> got his knob out mm. and said look does, look how much bigger it is from here and uh, his girlfriend said god I can't take you anywhere they were alone in the room yeah. what he didn't realise was that the image was being projected onto a screen <laughs> in another room next door right. which was full of people oh no he was arrested <laughs> he was arrested for exposing himself oh my it god feels, I mean that kind of half fair enough but on the other hand yeah. they should have told they him that told it was him. being definitely yeah. <laughs> you've got to be told if you think you're alone in a room you can do any sort That's of thing crazy. I know. Well, he was completely mortified he was so worried about it for two years he has ended up being officially admonished uh, right. by... I think that actually women shouldn't be allowed to walk past that illusion <laughs> on say, a Saturday anyway uh, yeah. I think Woking Golf Club should actually install one of those mirrors in the changing rooms that's going to solve lots of issues <laughs> Okay, it's time for our final fact of the show, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that when hyenas hunt, they often go for low-hanging fruit. They especially like buffalo testicles. (laughs) Poor buffaloes. (laughs) Doesn't that mean the buffalo's angry? And buffaloes are big. Sure, but hyenas are quick. Yeah, they are. And, and vicious. Then they've got and hard, sharp teeth. Yeah. 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 Um, so hyenas are famous for being scavengers, I think, mostly. Mm. Um, but if you look into it, they are all-rounders, really. They do scavenge sometimes, but they also hunt a lot. And they especially hunt when they don't have anything to scavenge. So there's been a thing recently in uh, Kenya uh, where there have been fewer lions around. And because there are fewer lions, there's fewer dead animals for the hyenas Mm. to go after and because a hyena can't really chase a gazelle because they're not fast enough it's hard for them to catch big animals they tend to go for things that are kind of easy for them to get Mm. Uh, and according to this article i read which was actually about the 2022 kenyan election weirdly enough (laughs) uh, but in this article um, they said that there is a thing where they've been found to be to be grabbing the balls of buffaloes. Oh, wow. Is it kind of on the go? As in, are they aiming to get the whole buffalo and they just settle for the balls? Or is it just... I believe quick... I believe they go for a quick testicle and then leg it. The thing is, they're so... Their teeth are so sharp. Yeah. They're so fast at eating as well. They can just absolutely mm. decimate their prey really quickly. I imagine the buffaloes might not even notice to begin with. Mm. Just to begin with, with, it's just so quick. It's just like your balls are gone. And then it's like a few minutes later, like feels a bit loosey goosey down there. What's going on? Like (laughs) that is just such a precision cut. I, Nope, no one. If you're a buffalo uh, and you're (laughs) feeling sore. They're amazing though. Like, so their teeth, properly, properly sharp. They can, and this is the spotted hyena. So we've got, we've got four species of hyena that are alive today. We used to have a lot more in the fossil record. There was something like 70 different species of hyena. They were even finding ones now that were sort of in the Arctic, you know, North Canada, where they didn't Mm. think they were before. They found teeth extracts and so on. So we're finding more hyenas. Polar bear balls. (laughs) 
Um, but their teeth are so strong, they can chew through the skulls of elephants. Like, that's how... And they can digest things in ways that most other animals can't. So right. they can properly, like, they can digest bone. And yeah, they're the yeah. only things, it's really. The only mammals that can digest bone, one of the only mammals. Oh, wow. And, yeah, but they're bone crunching, and that's really good because it sort of recycles stuff on the savannah, mm. and it, like, returns all those nutrients, all that good stuff in bone, like phosphorus and calcium goes into the soil. And they have white poo, so if you are looking around on the ground you see some bright white poo likely oh, wow. to be a hyena around are, are they dangerous to humans well, oh, they, can, they can you, hurt you you get your balls out <laughs> you know, make maybe, it sound like a buffalo yeah, not without my mirror you're, I'm a, do that. you're an amusing optical illusion thing I think this will be really funny I just want to say I find hyenas very gross personally oh. I know Ooh, you're Anna, gonna get you're gonna well. get well, I just, they're, they're, they're sort of pretty mean customers and they're you know I know they, they have lots of you know good things about oh, oh, they're what kind of God's like creatures they're all God's creatures but they just, I know they look weird and ugly they're that weird sloping shape they make a horrible laugh they're in the Lion King aren't they but they do, yeah. make, they do make that horrible laugh. They're pretty... Yeah, and they do you do. think they're kind of laughing at you? <laughs> I, no, I, they, like, they never do whenever yeah. I'm near them. That's the annoying thing. Like, I'm banging out some great material for them. Yeah. Um, that solo amazing. show you took to the Savannah was... Uh... If you ever go to the zoo with Andy, hyenas <laughs> are pissing trial. themselves yeah. until Andy walks past and they go, oh, I preferred his old stuff. <laughs> um, obviously, Andy's not alone and not liking hyenas. And we've talked before about the Lion King effect, not helping yeah. their reputation as I like well. him. I'm going to put it out there. I like him. Oh, I like oh, him. Yeah. Yeah, all right, the kind of woke police comes along now. <laughs> Wait, I thought you were saying you, you like them too, Anna. Yeah, well, I'm not going to make a big deal of it. You know? I'm wow. not going to just start a whole campaign. That's what happens when you when you try <laughs> Yeah, you can't something win. nice, Dan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't Don't win here. Um, so the word mafisi means hyena in Swahili, but in Kenya, it's also an insult. Like it's also slang. I think it means something like shithead or shit brains oh, or something. So weird that the people who know most about hyenas would have a negative word which also means hyena. Wow. <laughs> well, they're they're clearly misinformed, aren't they? Anna? I hope you go over and do a re-education tour. <laughs> there is something actually that they screw up for us, um, and that is if you are a paleoanthropologist. And so maybe you don't like them from this perspective um, because this is people who are looking for evidence of hunter-gatherer humans, ancient humans or proto-humans. And sometimes it's really hard to tell if humans have been somewhere or if hyenas have been somewhere because they are the only two things that can break up bones. And so you'll find piles of animal bones that have been shattered or mostly devoured. And humans had stone tools with which they could smash up bones. Hyenas obviously can just chew through them. And they actually, scientists did an experiment to see how we can tell the difference. And they fed some bones to hyenas and they gave some bones to humans with a hammer, hammer stones, and told them to smash them up. Right. And you can't really tell the difference. Wow. That's so interesting. There is one interesting thing that hyenas can tell your paleo guys mm -hmm. um, and girls mm -hmm. and that is that um, there might have been Neanderthals nearby oh. uh, because hyenas were kept by Neanderthals as pets no. so in the same way that humans had dogs yeah. for various different things you know for you know oh. Partnership or hunting <laughs> or whatever then Neanderthals had hyenas wow. and the thing is that a hyena is a type of cat yeah. Um, but it really fills in the niche of a dog. You know, you, if you didn't know, you would think it was kind of a dog. Yeah. And it could be that that's why they exist even, because they're basically the Neanderthal dog. And then the Neanderthals died out, but then the hyenas are still here. And Incredible. that's why they, they really miss their owners, which is why they're so... Um 
Sad. I bet they. Sad. I bet they ate their owners. <laughs> I bet, uh, that's why the Neanderthals died out. Actually, was because they had such incredibly fair, unfriendly dogs. It's funny you say that. There was a find. I think last year in a cave in Spain of um, Neanderthal bones, and they think they were eaten by hyenas. Yes. No, really? so, no, I think no they might kidding. Have sometimes turned on them. I think like, they're just animals. They're just doing what they do. But they are. They're unfriendly. <laughs> they're not. They're not well disposed to well, us. They're sort of. They sort of arrive unfriendly as well, don't they? So hyenas. It's a. It's dominated by the females. Um, their society. Mm. And when the mother is pregnant, in the later stages of pregnancy, there's a moment where sort of a lot of testosterone is released into the womb. And they basically just soak in it like a bath for the final stages of the pregnancy. <laughs> and then when they come out, um, it's it's usually the female hyenas who really get more of this testosterone in them than the male hyenas, the boy hyenas that are coming out. And so the females are like, Furious, like they're in there. The, testo- <laughs> the testosterone is going crazy in them. Their teeth are ready. They go born with their eyes open, and they're just ready to fight. And if the litter that the hyena has, if that's the correct term, is two girls, let's say, then those two will immediately see some food and just try and kill each other to make sure that they're the one who gets the dinner. Whereas if a boy comes out with a girl, then there's no fighting because the boy's like, "I'm, I'm not, not touching you. You're vicious. You're crazy." Um, these are Lion King ones. Oh, yeah. uh, the, the ones that were animated in The Lion King mm-hmm. yeah. They were based on some real hyenas I mean obviously yeah. they're based on hyenas But in fact we know specifically which hyenas they were based cool. on And these are the hyenas from Berkeley, California um, <laughs> Classic Hollywood I was going to say Do you think they go back to their pack And they're sort of so Oh well I'm the famous hyena But if they're already living in Berkeley then They're already completely out of themselves yeah. They've all been in something uh, Yeah they're on the bone smoothies um, There was this research <laughs> centre in Berkeley Which had 30 hyenas living in it And they were being studied by uh, brilliant research scientists And I read a great piece all about this research centre One of the keepers of the hyenas Who was interviewed in this article She was called uh, Mary Weldeller I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right I'm sure I'm not but uh, when the guy who's writing the piece goes and speaks to her uh, he notices that Mary had a very really peculiar thumb and you know why she had such a peculiar thumb? Um, <laughs> was she part hyena? a very small part hyena? That's exactly right she it traps it in a door uh, it's more related to what I'm saying. <laughs> right. She had a very peculiar looking thumb yeah, Had it been eaten by a hyena? It was her big toe and the reason was because oh. her original thumb had been bitten off by a hyena. <laughs> wow. And so they had to replace it with her big toe. Well, oh. I bet she aggravated it. I bet she gave it a thumbs down for something. She wasn't happy. <laughs> uh, we've said there are four, well, you said, Dan, there are four species of hyena. I did. And yeah, you say that they are more closely related to cats than to dogs, but they're actually just their own, uh, they're not even their own species, they're their own family. They're so different to anything else. And each hyena species is in its own genus. I think the spotted hyenas get all the most press and they are the ones who do the most hunting. So mm. actually they hunt most of the food they eat. Um, they actually get more of their kills stolen by lions than the other way around. Oh, do they? Um, mm. But my favourite hyenas are aardwolves, mm. yeah. which get not that much press. And aardwolves are the fourth species, which only eat insects. And they're quite slow <laughs> and quite crap at fighting. They only eat the testicles of ants. So. <laughs> <laughs> they have to get down really low. They're very good at limbo. Yeah. God, I've heard of an aardwolf, but I did not know it was a kind of hyena. No, yeah. I didn't either. And now yeah. I've gone right off them. No, <laughs> really? yeah. Well, bad news, Andy, because I know you don't want hyenas strolling the streets mm. of Britain. But, and they can't, according to the Dangerous Wild Animals Act of 1976, right. you're not allowed to have a pet hyena, 
but you are allowed to have a pet Ardwolf. Oh, Specifically, really? in the law, it says all hyenas are banned except for the Ardwolf. No way! Because wow. they're safe. They well, because just... all they do is eat termites. <laughs> yeah. Have you guys seen a photo of one? Do they look like a hyena? Are yeah. they sort of indistinguishable? Same height, same size? Uh, yeah, they look, yeah, I would say they, they look... All four species look a bit different, mm. but very similar to each other. Right. Yeah. Wow. But they have, like, really long tongues, like an aardvark cool. tongue, for instance. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh. Basically, their only way of defending themselves, one of the only ways is they secrete this substance from their anal glands, which is really disgusting. And actually, we don't know. It could be defence, <laughs> or it could be to mark their territory or tell other hyenas where they are and according to there was a book on African mammals I was reading which explained how they um, wipe their substances on the ground and they straddle a grass stalk and then they rapidly squat I think up and down on this grass stalk while everting their anal pouch and it wipes this smear so you know if they've been around you can see a little smear of their lovely um, presence Um, Mm. do you know the hyena men in Nigeria no these are traditional storytellers, but their main trick seems to be there are a few of them, they're itinerant, they never stay in one place more than a couple of days. And their main thing is they have sort of pet hyenas, and their job, I think, is to sell kind of powders and potions that can um, you okay. know, cure you of things. Hmm. And they have these pet hyenas, and what they do is they beat drums to attract crowds, and then the crowds come, and then they put their arms and their heads inside hyenas' jaws oh. and show, look, it didn't bite my head off, and that's because I've used this powder. Why don't you buy some powder Gosh. that it won't bite your head off? What is the reason? They've just domesticated the, the hyenas. Yeah, or maybe sometimes they do bite their heads off, but you don't hear about those or now. Or it's an hard wolf. <laughs> just dressed as a hyena. Yeah. It just licks inside your ear with its long tongue. Wow, that's great. Uh, um, uh, hyenas go on a diet during Lent in Ethiopia, <laughs> specifically. That's what? amazing. <laughs> what? They, um, it's a Catholic, is it a Catholic country? Ethiopia? It's very Christian. I think it is. It's very Christian. Christian. Yeah, sorry. In so Ethiopia, they... there's constant fasting um, in the Christian yeah. community. Oh, really? So I guess they're subscribing to that. Well, this was, uh, again, a study done by a scientist called Gaidi Yirga and colleagues who analysed 553 hyena scats uh, before, <laughs> during, and after the period of Lent in Ethiopia. And what they found is that basically, um, during Lent, the butchers uh, aren't selling meat. Because people aren't eating meat as much, right? Uh-huh. So that's a problem. Hyenas don't have as much scavenging to do. So they hunt donkeys instead. All right. They don't say, oh, you know what? For Lent, I'm going to give up buffalo testicles. <laughs> Just for the 40 days and then... Quite the reverse. It's really bad to be a donkey during Lent in Ethiopia because oh. the odds of you being eaten by a hyena rocket. Right. And because the, the, they, they basically they analysed all the hyena feces and they found that donkey hair proportion in the feces shoots yeah. up more than doubles during l- the Lenten period. Gosh. That's a real so, slap in the face, isn't it? Because as the creature that brought the Virgin Mary yeah. into Bethlehem to give birth to took Christ, Christ our Saviour... Well, t- and took Christ into... Um, on, the, pa- on Palm Sunday, on Palm wasn't Sunday. he? When he arrived yeah. on a donkey, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you're the one who's getting punished at Lent of all times. <laughs> yeah. There's irony. There's irony. Yeah. No wonder they're so bloody gloomy all the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's what Eeyore's thinking about. I missed, that. Like, <laughs> I missed that bit of the hundred acre wood where Eeyore gets eaten by a hyena. <laughs> 
Okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we've said over the course of this podcast, we can all be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreibland, James. At James Harkin. Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. And Anna. You can email podcast at qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account, which is at no such thing, or our website, no such thing as a fish.com. All of our previous episodes are up there. Do check it out. Also, check out Club Fish, the secret membership club. Not so secret, you can just join it. Anyone can, and you should. It's really fun. You get bonus content there's a really cool community hidden away in discord where all the fans get together and chat about their favorite things it's really really fun have a look but otherwise just come back here next week we'll be back with another episode we'll see you then goodbye